Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who was charged with the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, the intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz. As Rittenhouse was the undisputed shooter of all three men, his legal team argued that the shootings were in self-defense. At the end of each week, I am joined by a guest to help us distill and further examine what we heard in trial that previous week. Again this week, my guest is Abby Smith, who serves as professor of law and director of the Criminal Defense and Prisoner Advocacy Clinic at Georgetown University. Together we'll explore a number of the issues that were raised by the courtroom events that we covered this past week, including the testimony of prosecution witness and social media influencer, Corey Washington. That's all coming up right after the break. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. And now, my conversation with Georgetown law professor and criminal defense attorney, Abby Smith. Abby Smith, thank you again for joining us. My pleasure. Starting off, what were your initial impressions of Corey Washington's testimony? And particularly, why do you think Prosecutor Binger called him as his second witness? And what was his strategy in eliciting Washington's testimony? I thought Washington was a good witness. He came across as a kind of a solid citizen, interesting guy, a little offbeat, smart, articulate, neutral. And I think the purpose consistent with the prosecution theory was to say there was a lot of chaos. There were a lot of armed people on the streets of Kenosha, but nobody else shot a firearm. And the more I hear from witnesses in the case, the less effective I think the prosecution's theory is. It's just too easy to rebut. The defense is going to say it's not about whether anybody else shot. Nobody else claimed to have been attacked by various people. The case is about Kyle Rittenhouse and why he did what he did, not why other people did what they did. So the stuff that Binger was asking him about, the danger to the gas station posed by the dumpster fire, the establishment of Rosenbaum as being ahead of Rittenhouse as they ran down Sheridan Road. What, in your view, was Binger's strategy in eliciting these pieces of testimony? You know, I guess he was trying to make the situation in Kenosha that day less explosive, literally and figuratively, by having the witness say, yeah, you know, there were a couple of dumpster fires. It was really not a big deal. Things were under control. It was sort of business as usual. And I think he, you know, also tried to diffuse Mostly, frankly, Binger used the witness to try to rebut 
or mitigate some of the defense suggestions. For example, the suggestion that Rosenbaum was obscuring his face to hide his identity as opposed to using his shirt as a COVID-type mask. He sort of wanted to paint that picture. He wanted to sort of neutralize Rosenbaum by asking Washington, "Have you ever had you ever seen him before? Was he somebody who was known to you? And I think that the kind of inferences that Washington would have known him, would have noticed him and would have been alarmed, you know, had he thought Rosenbaum posed any particular danger to anybody else. I mean, I, I think he was using it in an anticipatory way. I guess here's what I really think, Carrie, it depends on who's on the jury. Uh, Mr. Washington came across to me, at least auditorily, I, di- I didn't see him in court, but based on your description of how he was dressed, It sounds like he came across well in person as well. You know, maybe it was important to have a kind of commentator who was there on the scene who kind of saw himself as an observer and commentator. Maybe it was good that he was African-American, given the context of the demonstrations. You know, there was an evidentiary objection about the purpose of Washington's testimony. I think the judge was right to allow it. And I understand why Binger wanted it in just to kind of set the stage in a way that was consistent with how the prosecution was trying its case. I I think he was a fine witness. It's just in the end, I don't think anybody scored any points with him. I'd like to pose a few kind of thoughts and suggested directions that Binger might have gone in to use the witness to much greater effect. And among those ideas are he never really called attention to the fact that among all of the people who were armed that night, the one person that drew Washington's attention or the attention of his camera was Rittenhouse. And Washington described Rittenhouse as jittery, as chain smoking. Mm-hmm. But he never put that together with the fact that the kid was young and he was carrying an AR-15 strapped to his chest. There was never that kind of overall view of Rittenhouse as a jittery kid who's chain smoking, seemingly underage and in fact underage, and carrying about the most deadly weapon you could be carrying on the streets of Kenosha, Wisconsin. Okay, that's a that's a really good question, you know, about the role of witnesses in telling a story consistent with a theory of the case. And I'm going to be a Monday morning quarterback inevitably, and I don't really want to be one, but it, it depends on what the witness could say. I'm, I'm with you that Binger could have gotten more out of that witness if he had spent enough time preparing him. Because the questions that you can ask on direct are non-leading questions. They're what, why, when, who, where, please explain, please describe kinds of questions. And so the question would have been, why was your attention drawn to Kyle Rittenhouse? What was it about his behavior that drew your attention? Describe his behavior. Did you happen to notice his age? Did anything about his age strike you? as unusual, especially in view of the fact that he was carrying an AR-15. But digging around in there to take some time, you know, there's a technique in direct examination where you kind of freeze frame and stop the action and get as much detail as you can about various moments. That would have been more compelling storytelling had he done that. Now, I just don't know if Washington 
could give Binger the information he was after. Maybe he could have. Maybe there needed to be more preparation. I don't know. Well, everything I just said to you was stuff that came out during the course of his testimony. Those were things that Washington himself said. He just never said them all together. And I think this is a good segue to move on to how Corey Sharafasi controlled the narrative of his questioning. He may not have elicited exactly the testimony that he wanted out of Washington, but he certainly was much more effective at establishing signposts of his narrative trajectory. And, you know, among those things were calling attention to the fact that Washington himself was in violation of the curfew and that while Rittenhouse was charged with violating the curfew, Washington never was charged with that. That the presence of armed individuals like Rittenhouse deterred looters and arsonists. Uh That Washington's skateboard, like Huber's, could be used as a weapon. That there were people throwing dangerous projectiles amid the chaos and, you know, inserting that as one of the reasons that Rittenhouse was reasonable in his fear of the environment, that the dumpster fire near a gas station was dangerous and that Rosenbaum was agitated that the fire was extinguished and Kyle Rittenhouse was carrying a fire extinguisher. And then finally, that Rosenbaum was acting in an erratic manner and Rittenhouse was acting relatively calm. It wasn't so much that that Washington confirmed those parts of Sharafasi and the defense's narrative. It was that Sharafasi had a strategy for what he was trying to elicit from Washington. And it seemed Binger, to your point, was entirely reactive to what the defense case was and didn't seem to have a narrative of his own in mind. Well, that's interesting. And it's a sophisticated observation. Um, Look, I'm a criminal defense lawyer and cross-examination is a key tool of the trade. It's easier on cross to make clear points, to identify the points you want to make that ultimately you'll want to argue in closing argument and develop those points on cross. Direct examination in some ways is more challenging. Maybe as a criminal defense lawyer, it's not something I do as often as prosecutors do it. Prosecutors ought to get good at it. Binger could have told a better story, a more detailed story that was consistent with his point, but I'm afraid he was doing something as as vague and broad as just setting the stage or establishing the context because some of the things that Binger did kind of worked against him even before the cross-examination, even before there was any need to anticipate or respond to what the defense did. For example, I think it was on direct examination that Binger asked whether there were other individuals who were armed on the streets of Kenosha and how many there were. And the answer was memorable. It, It was, he said, oh, maybe as many as two dozen people is what Washington said. And that kind of immediately diffused the image of Rittenhouse carrying a gun, which you would think is a kind of startling image, a teenager who's, you know, who's strapped with a semi-automatic weapon. But now we've got like a bunch of people walking around armed. It begins to be almost kind of commonplace. I think there was all the more need for Binger to say, okay, what was different about Rittenhouse? Why'd you 
Why'd you focus on him as opposed to these other people who are walking around with guns? You know, how was he acting? How was he behaving? Was there anything concerning about it? But you're right. He mostly seemed to be anticipating the defense. There was some time spent on direct examination on the fact that Washington is himself a skateboarder. And he had him kind of describe the skateboard. And then the defense went to town suggesting that the skateboard was a weapon and how it could be held and how it could be used to strike another person. And it wasn't until redirect then that Binger asked some questions about, yeah, well, have you ever used it as a weapon? Do you think of it as a weapon? You know, it's really interesting that the decision to call particular witnesses and what you want to get out of them, the direct examination should have been planned similarly to how a cross-examination is planned. Binger should have thought about what are my goals? What are the two or three things I want to get out of this examination? And then when you know what you're after, you spend time on those things and really develop them. And you develop them through the witness. You've got to ask the kinds of questions that will essentially guide the witness through the direct examination and get the witness to provide sufficient detail. But that that, that wasn't the takeaway from the direct examination. I, I thought he was, a, what I took away from the direct examination was Washington's a good guy. He was there, he saw a bunch of things, kind of accurately described what was going on around him and seemed reasonable, but didn't really offer much about Rittenhouse and about how bizarre... Rittenhouse was and how aggressive Rittenhouse was, which would be the prosecution's theory. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In the next part of our conversation, I pick up on Abby's comments regarding Prosecutor Thomas Binger's theory of the case against Kyle Rittenhouse. I'm glad you came back to this question of what the prosecution's theory was, because it struck me that Binger had locked himself into a theory of the case where Kyle Rittenhouse was this malignant, militia, alt-right demon. Mm -hmm. And when you compare that particularly with the defense attorneys who were saying that this is a kid who was scared. And it felt like Binger's theory of the case was decidedly less reasonable and plausible given what the witness testimony was going to be, what the evidence was going to be, and ultimately how Rittenhouse would present himself on the stand Mm -hmm. than the defense theory of the case. Yeah, I think I think that's the problem with the prosecution in this case. As I've said before, I think Binger is smart and able. I also think it's an interesting question about storytelling and criminal trials. The defense often has much more leeway. We're allowed to be interesting storytellers. We can be characters. We can be undiluted partisans. We're supposed to be. Prosecutors I think, learn that they're supposed to come across as more ministerial, as more even-handed. And Binger does that, but 
in so doing, you don't have to get rid of the story. And he had a story to tell. I, you know, I don't understand really why the prosecution's theory, first of all, was so narrow. They kind of put all their eggs in the basket of here's what's weird about Rittenhouse. He shot, you know, two people. He shot and killed two people and almost killed a third and nobody else shot. That's that's not a narrative, really. A narrative would be young guy full of his own swagger and power, you know, hyped up on tobacco and the thrill of strapping a serious firearm around himself was like a loose cannon looking for trouble, overreacting. That's that's a different kind of narrative. And I think that's the narrative that was lost here. And they probably could not have anticipated how sympathetic Kyle Rittenhouse might appear on the stand. On the other hand, they should have. They should have anticipated that. It was kind of clear from the beginning the defense was going to call him and they were going to use the stuff that they had, his youth and his kind of Boy Scout lifeguard background. And even the use of the word curfew, I, I, I think the defense really enjoyed that line of cross-examination because it's so silly and minor. Everybody's had a curfew in our lives, right? Either your parents set a curfew or occasionally the places you live in had curfews. Um, you know, a, a curfew is sort of about mischief. It's not about serious crime. I think your alternative prosecution theory for the case is a lot more in line with what I think might have been effective. Now, again, the deeper that I look at this case, the harder it seems to me to make the case as a prosecutor, particularly for the level of charges that were filed against Rittenhouse. But I do think that the prosecution missed an opportunity to prepare a more reasonable and more attractive theory of the case for the jury. I mean, even when you jump into a detail like his sort of defensive description of the shirt around Rosenbaum's face as a COVID mask. I mean, it didn't have to be a COVID mask to not be nefarious. There are fires going on. Right. Maybe he's just protecting himself from the smoke of the fires. Right. You know, that would have been better. It would have been innocent and more understandable, I think, to a jury. I don't know. You know, I some I come back to confidence that prosecutors often have in their cases. There's a kind of arrogance sometimes that comes with it because prosecutors tend to have a built-in narrative. It's, you know, almost exactly what comes from a police report. It's chronological and there's a climax of a crime and they usually have really good witnesses to tell their stories. Generally speaking, prosecutors have, you know, college educated witnesses who are used to testifying. It's especially true when it comes to police officers who are essentially professional witnesses. And if you think about what cops do, they enforce the law on the street and then they come to court to testify about it. They get good at that latter thing. And oftentimes the prosecutors have at least some of those kind of witnesses I mean, here too with Washington, he, he had, you know, a smart witness who would have been able, I think, to provide the kind of narrative detail that might have made Kyle Rittenhouse be less, you know, youthful, afraid in over his head and more full of bravado and swagger and, you know, the sort of post-adolescent gun-loving, strutting around, you know, vigilante. I mean, I that has to have been the prosecution's theory is that this is a young man who took the law into his own hands. That's why 
he was packing, and that's why he was packing with such a serious weapon, and nobody invited him there. It sounds to me like what you're saying is that the prosecution's theory of the case, the evidence that they were going to be presented, and the charges that were filed against Kyle Rittenhouse were somehow out of sync. Is that an accurate assessment of what your perspective on this is? What I'm suggesting is that the charges should at least be consistent with the narrative that the prosecutor is going to be offering to a jury. And here, the charging seems odd to me and out of sync with the evidence, because the charge involving Joseph Rosenbaum is the first degree reckless homicide charge. And the story that I think the prosecutor had to tell doesn't sound reckless to me, at least. It sounds intentional. Rittenhouse shot multiple times, and at least one of the shots was to Rosenbaum's back. And apparently um, that might have been the shot that actually killed him. That seems to me that that should have been charged as first degree intentional homicide, which carries a life sentence as opposed to a first degree reckless homicide, which carries 60 years. Anyhow, then the next two victims, Anthony Huber and Gage Grosskreutz, those just, it just strikes me from a narrative perspective, they sound more reckless. He's already shot one guy and now he feels like he's being attacked by a mob and he's kind of shooting here, there and everywhere is what it kind of feels like. Um, You know, yes, once in response to Huber with his skateboard, but uh, Grosskreutz is sort of shot randomly. And the couple of people in the crowd, Richard McGinnis and the unidentified person, they were endangered because of a, a kind of freak out by Rittenhouse that just feels less intentional to me as a, as a matter of storytelling. Yeah. I mean, the one exception there is that Grosskreutz did have a gun and was holding the gun. But to your point, I think Wisconsin law of self-defense says that the use of force has to be commensurate with the force necessary to stop the threat. And the use of an AR-15 against somebody wielding a skateboard- Yes, would be excessive force. But likewise, you know, the reason I think that the offense that was charged in relation to Rosenbaum feels wrong to me is because Rittenhouse had the gun strapped to him. He literally had gone out and bought a sling so that the gun would be strapped to him. So there was no reasonable possibility that somebody was going to get that gun off of him, which is what the defense maintains. Instead, what you really had, or the story at least the prosecution should have told is you have an unarmed person and maybe even embrace the fact that it's an unarmed person with mental health problems. I think sometimes you got to take back a bad narrative based on stereotypes. Just because Rosenbaum had been released from you know, a hospital doesn't mean he's a violent person. Most mentally ill people, most people with serious mental health problems, they're not violent. They're, that doesn't make them more of a, of a threat. In fact, in some ways, they're more vulnerable. But be that as it may, we've got an unarmed guy, Rosenbaum. You can tell he's unarmed. He's wearing shorts and he's carrying a bag that's clear. You can see what his possessions are. That, that's just not the kind of person that you need to shoot multiple times with a semi-automatic weapon. That's why I think the charge for him should have been the highest degree of intentional homicide. 
Interesting. I mean, I could actually see your argument working for a different theory of the case by the prosecution, but even still with the reckless homicide. In other words, if you've got a jittery kid who's strapping a gun to himself, then it would have been unreasonable for him, even with a mentally ill person who'd just been released from the hospital, yelling in his face, that even that, it was reckless of the kid to fire his weapon when it would have been reasonable for him to believe that that weapon was not going to be taken away from him. Right. And it's, you know, being yelled at is it's not the same thing as being threatened with deadly force. And he used deadly force in response after putting himself there. I mean, I, you know, I actually love the image of the chain smoking, jittery, agitated is, is a word that comes to mind. Young man who's, you know, sort of full of his own power and bravado. That's, that's a very compelling narrative. And it's probably different from how Rittenhouse is going to appear on the stand later on, but doesn't matter. The prosecution always has, you know, the argument that he's been prepared by his lawyers, that what you're seeing now is very, very different from how Mr. Rittenhouse was on the streets of Kenosha on that night. And by the way, given Rittenhouse's emotional breakdown on the stand, that could have been used as evidence of a certain emotional volatility and agitation in him. And immaturity. Uh, Yep, yep. And immaturity. He's crying. And also, it's like the age-old thing, what judges say to criminal defendants at sentencing. Yeah, you're crying. You're crying now because you got caught. You're not crying because you feel regret or remorse. And I think the prosecutor could have had fun with that with Rittenhouse. I'm sure he was absolutely scared on the stand of punishment. Right. But, well, you know, I, I do love the jittery agitation. Now, you know, now that we're talking about it, Carrie, I, I, I wish the prosecutor had really spent time with Washington. He could have been a very good witness. He's much better than the witness that the prosecution started with. I don't know why they they made that choice either. But I could imagine it'd be like bringing out a narrator, a kind of neutral, dispassionate, objective narrator to say, okay, here's what was going on. Here's everything I was seeing. And it's just not what the defense is portraying. Things were under control. We didn't need people to come in from out of town. We certainly didn't need adolescent males, you know, with a passion for firearms on the streets of Kenosha. Things were being handled just fine. And yet, you know, here's this guy, this kid all hyped up on something. Adrenaline plus cigarettes plus guns plus teenage hormones. Terrible combination. No inherently toxic combination. The prosecutor in Kenosha, Wisconsin, the DA in Kenosha, Wisconsin, the lead prosecutor there, was a guy named Mike Gravely. And ordinarily, you would imagine that he would have taken the case himself. He would have prosecuted it himself. But he handed it down to Thomas Binger. Why do you think he would do that? So I I don't know. It's a high profile case. It's an unusual case. I would imagine it's kind of a case of a lifetime in Kenosha, Wisconsin, national case. And usually, especially political actors, prosecutors who need to get elected would take that case because of the glory and limelight and publicity. I don't know whether the head of the office was himself an experienced trial lawyer or whether he was more of a manager. You know, I have to imagine that he would ask the trial star of his office to take the case. Somebody, you know, in whom the chief prosecutor has a lot of confidence. So I I have to imagine that that's who Binger is and that was his reputation. And like I said, he's very 
smart and able, but just kind of missed the boat here. And I agree with you. It's it's a narrative boat. He he let the defense have the good story instead of seizing the good story himself. Great. Well, Abby Smith, I really appreciate, again, your time. And I'm really looking forward to following up on this in subsequent weeks. Okay, great. Thanks. That concludes this weekly recap episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Please join us next week as we take a look at the testimony of Kenosha Police Detective Martin Howard, one of the two lead investigators of the shootings on August 25th, 2020. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our guest on this episode was professor of law at Georgetown University, Abby Smith. It was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. It was edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and trial audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.